Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am joined by Gabby Goldstein, co-founder of Sister District. Gabby is the co-founder. In addition to that, their organization, the mission focuses on building progressive power in state legislature, which is something we really need right now. Thank you so much for joining us, Gabby. My pleasure, so happy to be here. Yes, and during kind of unfortunate times, because we know with these oral arguments before the Supreme Court, essentially deciding the fate of Mississippi's last abortion clinic, also the future of Roe v. Wade. We've seen things come down in terms of essentially allowing Texas's abortion law, anti-ban kind of set up there, really stand. And there just to be seems to be so many things that are really in chaos right now. Can you tell us a little bit about what needs to be done? Absolutely. So I live in Washington DC and actually walked down to the steps of the Supreme Court before the oral argument started in Dobbs a couple of weeks ago and it was, you know, it was really sobering and important to gather together and be in community with so many repro justice warriors, but you know, walking home listening to the oral arguments going on in the court, I think, you know, it was very very clear that what I think we've suspected is the case, which is that this composition of the Supreme Court is likely ready to, if not overturn Roe, really, really gut the federal protections that it has long provided. And it's really part of a long-term conservative strategy to narrow federal protections around our civil rights and give more power to the states to decide. Um, Certainly abortion access is one of just many issues that we're continuing to see fall back to states to decide. And that makes the project of building progressive power in our states, in our state legislatures, more critical than ever. These are very, very overlooked venues of power for progressives, but for a variety of reasons, and we can talk about them, these are these are growing in power. Our state legislatures are growing in power. So I always say, I hate to say, progressives are tardy to the party when it comes to paying attention to state legislatures, but it's absolutely critical that we really invest our time and our energy in building power at that level of government. Indeed, it sounds like it's something that is extremely pivotal, not just because you know Roe v. Wade will impact essentially a lot of individuals in our society if in the event that it gets overturned or in any way put in states' hands, but also, as you mentioned, other civil rights that could potentially be on the line. Can you help our viewers understand what the bigger scope of things could actually be that could be damaged by state legislature in the event that essentially the Supreme Court hands the states back a lot of rights. Absolutely. I mean, just, you know, as a as a moment of history, this is a conservative project going back hundreds of years, right? It's the idea of states' rights. And it's really the idea that the federal government's protections and the protections of the Constitution, the federal Constitution, should be interpreted really narrowly, as narrowly as possible. And that states' rights should be enlarged as much as possible. So this is a project with a huge amount of institutional backing and infrastructure on the right that goes back hundreds of years. And for a variety of reasons, the infrastructure on the progressive side is less well 
well-developed, one could say. And we're really coming from behind, both when it comes to investing in, uh, in states and in state legislatures, but also something that I think is really important, developing a narrative about the positive power of states. We don't really think of federalism as being you know, a good thing for progressives, right? But we really do have to invest some time and energy into scoping out a vision of the world that would be really positive for us if states were full of progressives pushing really incredible policy that would be helping everybody's lives. So I think both things are important. We have to be on defense in terms of the tremendous infrastructure that exists on the right. But we also have to be building our own positive vision of the world. And I think we know you know, coming out of the 2020 elections that a lot of folks are really exhausted with the sort of corrosive narrative and that you know, we want hope. We want we want to have things to look forward to, um, and I think we we need to mix states into that positive vision for us as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, when I think about the power that states hold, and in terms of being able to see what's going on down with Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, uh, in addition, seeing also kind of that counter movement that's going on with the governor Gavin Newsom in California, it really does show you the power of our leadership. And so I guess if you were to have any kind of vision moving forward, what is it that you would really encourage people to focus on? Yeah, well, so there's there's the, the good news and the bad news. I'll start with the bad news. Um, uh, state legislatures, I think we're, it's becoming very clear day to day that the play in 2024 for Republicans is going to be to subvert the presidential election in 2024 by using conservative, by, by using Republican controlled state legislatures. There's a, what was once a fringe legal theory that has been gaining steam called the independent state legislatures doctrine, which essentially argues that the Constitution, the Constitution says that state legislatures alone can decide election related issues and can set election rules. And essentially, if this legal doctrine is, you know, sort of blessed by the Supreme Court, which it has been, it's being teed up to be that way, um, would essentially give states like Wisconsin and, you know, Pennsylvania and, and Georgia, uh, Arizona, the ability to essentially assign their own electoral college votes regardless of how people have voted. So 2022 is our last chance to change the composition of state legislatures. All of those states that I just mentioned, you know, tiny, tiny margins for Joe Biden in 2020, they're all controlled. State legislatures are all controlled by Republicans. So it's very, very clear that this is the play, which means that 2022 is our last chance to build up some progressive power in these legislatures before the 24 election, where we know what the play is gonna be. It's gonna be using Republican controlled state legislatures to subvert the, the presidential election. So that's the, you know, sort of the, the what we're fighting against. Um, uh, and what we're fighting for is, as I mentioned, a, a vision of this country where states are bastions for progressive policy in the same way that um, you know, California and other, other uh, blue trifectas have been able to make tremendous gains in the areas of clean energy and 
um, environmental issues, uh, reproductive justice as a, as a broader framework than just um, uh, the right to an abortion, but really creating the conditions under which people can choose to have children or not have children and all the rest. We see our blue states uh, as, as places where these sorts of policies are growing and thriving. And we need more of that. And we need to have a bottom up approach as well as a top down federal approach for how these sorts of progressive policies can really make a difference in people's lives. When you're talking kind of to the everyday progressive out there who is listening to you, what would you suggest that they do? So the good news is that state legislative elections are smaller, they're cheaper, they're more human scale than the sorts of federal elections that we often think of getting involved in, like a Senate race or a congressional race. State led races, you know, they're, they cost a bit fraction of the amount. Um, and you can really form a connection to the candidates that are who are running uh, and really get to understand the issues in a much more immediate way. So the bang for your buck, so to speak, as a volunteer for, for your dollar of donation or your hour of phone banking goes a really, really long way at the state legislative level. Um, so it's a really great place to get involved. And uh, you know, next year, there's gonna be a tremendous number of really, really pivotal state legislative races. And now is a really good time to start plugging in and adding this into the portfolio of stuff that we do as activists and volunteers. It doesn't have to be all or nothing, just you know, add in a state legislative race into the, into the types of campaigns that you support. And if you're interested, check out our organization, Sister District. Sisterdistrict.com, where we have over 60,000 volunteers across the country organized into teams working every year to help elect progressives to state legislatures across the country. All right, and is there anyone who is truly, I guess, gaining momentum or is in a really pivotal place as a progressive who's running for office right now? Absolutely. I mean, I will say, you know, redistricting is underway right now. It happens once every decade. And, um, you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing is in a lot of Republican controlled states, they are gerrymandering their way into another decade of power. Um, but nonetheless, even in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania um, and Georgia, there are tremendous state ledge candidates who are running, who will run. And, and another thing to remember about state legislatures is they are our leadership pipeline. Half of all Congress people started in their state ledge, half of all presidents started in their state ledge. And so we have a tremendous opportunity to build up our bench for folks that can run for even higher office later. I mean, just one example is Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of Michigan, and she's up for reelection next year. She started in her state legislature and so, so many more. So it's a really, if folks are curious, we have our electoral map on our website where we've identified which chambers are likely to be most critically in play next year. And um, there's quite a few. So I really encourage folks to to get involved and start learning about state legislatures and, and add them into the mix. Excellent. Thank you so, so much, Gabby. You have been extremely insightful and you've given us some hope in terms of a roadmap on what we can do to essentially ensure that our civil rights are not rolled back. And so for those out there watching who would like to find out more information about Sister District and essentially the great work that you all do, can you tell them where they can find you? Sisterdistrict.com. Once you sign up, we'll get you connected to your local team and get you on your way to help 
elect some incredible progressives to our state legislatures. Wonderful, thank you again so much for joining us, Gabby Goldstein, co-founder of Sister District. You gotta check them out on social media and look to support your state legislature. We need progressive power. Thanks so much for joining us again, Gabby. Thank you. Welcome back to TYT's The Conversation. It's Adrian Lawrence once again, and this time I am joined by a member of state legislature, Rhode Island State Senator and a candidate for Lieutenant Governor, Cynthia Mendes. Thank you so much for joining us, Cynthia. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Cynthia, I know there's been a lot of word on the street right now about a progressive Rhode Island Senator who is essentially sleeping in tents outside of the state house. Is that you? That's us, yes. Um, we are on night 16 right now of sleeping outside of the state house, and um, I've, I'm not alone. Um, night one, I was joined. Uh, there were six of us, including my running mate, uh, running for lieutenant governor, my running mate who's running for uh, governor, Matt Brown, along with uh, six other folks, and it has absolutely exploded. Uh, Monday night, we had 100 people sleeping outside, and we also had a, a circle of solidarity with hundreds more joining us uh, there in this movement. Wow, and what are you trying to communicate in being out there? What is your movement? Rhode Island is uh, facing an unprecedented crisis. We had a crisis, to be clear, before of, of Rhode Islanders who are unhoused. But due to COVID, we had unprecedented numbers of unhoused Rhode Islanders. And we had a negligent and, in my opinion, very cool state legislature uh, and governor who has not addressed this crisis at all. It, um, just to outline, Rhode Island is the only democratic state in the country uh, that has not spent a penny of its American Rescue Plan money. So we received money to address this crisis. And the leaders of the state decided to sit on their hands while more and more Rhode Islanders find themselves outside facing a brutal winter. Wow, and that's a hell of a winter up there in Rhode Island. Uh, and I'm guessing there has been a response to your movement, your protest. What does that look like in terms of the response? Yeah, it, they're clearly terrified because we made a moral call here. When we stepped outside, we made a simple statement that we were coming outside and we were declaring that no one should freeze to death this winter, safe and dignified housing for everyone, and that it was way past out of time. To be clear, this the uh, advocates and service providers had been outlining this crisis 10 months ago. They made it really clear to the administration, Governor Dan McKee and the speaker and the Senate president that this crisis was going to be upon them for winter. They had time to be prepared. They had the funds to be prepared and they looked the other way. And so when it became really clear that Rhode Islanders across the state were not gonna stand for, for them to leave some Rhode Islanders outside in the cold, they, they did what they normally do. They scrambled and did performative um, gestures that did not address the crisis. They and I, some people think it's negligence um, and incompetence, and some people think it's cruelty. I think it's both. Yes, and it definitely sounds like it is problematic one way or the other, whether it's intentional or not. Uh, you know, the fact that you have individuals who are your constituents out there, who are the people you are supposed to serve and protect, and yet they are not provided with adequate housing. Uh, and you're absolutely right that this is a this is a point in terms of when it comes to just dignity and ensuring that people have a roof over their heads. And so, when it comes to next steps, uh, kind of what do you foresee? There's so much that could be done and that should have been done to mitigate this. For example, um, it would take just 15 
million dollars uh, to address uh, to get every Rhode Islander that's unhoused into um, warm, safe hotel rooms till March. Um, but to be clear, the service providers and advocates had been outlining starting 10 months ago exactly what could be done to address uh, to address this crisis. Um, that $15 million, by the way, would just be 1% of the American Rescue Plan money, the COVID money that they're currently sitting on, just 1%. Rhode Island's also on track uh, for a surplus of $600 million in our state budget. Uh, and so there's absolutely no excuse for this level of incompetence to leave folks outside. And so winter's already upon us. I should, we shouldn't even have to be here. We shouldn't have to be outside. I shouldn't have to remind the governor and the speaker and the Senate president to do their damn job. I, we should not have to do that. No, not at all. And you know, I really commend you all for standing out there, essentially moving away from what is comfort and comfortable as many individuals who are in state legislature, you know, they can speak and talk good, you know, and they have some great things to say. But when they actually put themselves in the situation of their constituents that they're fighting for, it says a lot. So I definitely commend you on that. And I know also that you are fighting for more and pushing for more as a hopeful for the lieutenant governor spot. Can you tell us? about your campaign? Absolutely, my campaign, to be clear, I'm not running alone. I'm running on a ticket with my running mate, Matt Brown for governor. And we're also running alongside a slate of candidates, progressive candidates who are gonna be running for a living wage, Green New Deal, Medicare for all, 50 candidates with the Rhode Island Political Cooperative on a shared platform. So the goal is not, the goal is to accomplish what many have been talking about for a really long time, to get a government that actually works for us, that is actually invested in the needs of Rhode Islanders in every nook and cranny of the state, that knows what it means when teachers are begging for resources, that understands that moms across the state are deciding between paying their mortgage and paying their medical bills. And, and, and what it's gonna take is to have those working class people, have those people that have been filling the gaps and fighting in there for their, for their neighbors in office have those heroes in office. And so, and that's when we'll start to see the difference of what we were just talking about, about the performative nature that we've been seeing. And there was nothing harder for me um, and um, soul crushing for me than to be in the Senate and watch the level of performance that was going on to people to push through policies and legislations that I knew and they knew were void of actual context that, that would actually be able to impact and improve people's lives. And then spend weeks on end patting each other on the back for it because they got a headline that when they knew that it wasn't going to actually change people's lives and impact while we're facing multiple crises across the state. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that you know, I'm not just, I'm not running alone. I'm running on a shared platform with amazing people and fighters all across neat uh, nurses, teachers, advocates, um, students, waitresses, people that know uh, and have the lived experience of living under an oppressive, greedy government leaders of this government and system. Actually, sounds very positive and very hopeful. The fact that you have running essentially um, um, opponents to some extent that you also really uplift in terms of their platform and what they stand for. That is an incredible thing. And so how did that come to be? Uh, did you all just figure, hey, this is the opportunity where we can all come together and uplift a message. So if one of us wins, we all win. How did this, how did this work? Yeah, that's a really great, great question. Um, Barry, Matt and I, as we're running together, our objective is to absolutely lift up um, 
the local candidates that are running in the legislature, and um, and that is very important. But this actually started in 2022, um, when the Rhode Island Political Cooperative ran uh, a slate of candidates, working class candidates across the state, um, and we won 10 races, um, including mine. And I uh, ran against the Senate, uh, the Senate Finance Chair, who outspent us four to one. Uh, he was slated to be the next Senate president. We beat him 62 to 38. And that was just one of many wins that happened in Rhode Island in 2020. So what we did was not only created a political tidal wave, it cracked open the door for people to know that this was possible, that they didn't have to rely on a negligent, absent, uh, callous leaders of the state, that they didn't have, that there was access to power now for us, by us. And so when that happened in 2020, and we saw those wins, um, the leaders of the state and the political establishment here caved on the bare minimum. But we knew at this point, we know we, we don't have to beg bad politicians to do good things. We know we can have good people in office that can deliver on the good things. So now we're going back for the whole thing. And 2022, that's why I'm running with Matt on a um, on a ticket. Uh, and Matt's running, Matt, Matt Brown is running for governor. And that's why we're running with 50, a slate of 50 candidates with the Rhode Island Political Cooperative. Because we don't, we're, not, we're not here for hope, we're here for action. And that's exactly what we're gonna do. And it's gonna take what it's always taken, all of us together. It's not gonna be one person for themselves. And I'm very excited about dismantling this egocentric politics where it's just one person for themselves. This is, it's always going to take all of us. That's what it's gonna take and that's what we're building. Yes, wow, that is a powerful thing and that is so incredibly cool. And I love that you are not here just to hope, but actually to do. Cuz we need that and we need more individuals like you and Matt out there. And so I'd love to know your thoughts on Rhode Island in terms of your constituents, the citizens there. Did they just have a change of heart? Was it COVID? What was it that made people say, you know what? We don't have to do this institutional game anymore. We don't have to do that whole you know, performative antics. Let's get some people who really want to do things. Yeah, I think it was amazing for, for people to be able to see it happen in 2020. I think they, I think um, Rhode Island has a history of corruption. I mean, every couple of years, someone's getting carted off to federal prison. Like we have, it is a long history of corruption and greed and old boys club insider game for a very long time. And so not only did we create a political tidal wave here with the Rhode Island Political Cooperative, but we showed people that it's possible. And you can't unsee that, you can't unsee that. And so now um, the constituents are excited because they're they're now invested and they know that there's there's a pipeline for their voices to be heard in the chambers of, of decision making, which is the way it should have always been. Absolutely, it definitely should have been that way. That is what democracy is supposed to be. And so hearing that essentially is being brought to Rhode Island and that there are change makers and game changers there. And that it's gonna be more than performative antics. I gotta say it definitely leaves me hopeful for the rest of the country. But I hope that there is more than just hope and actual action and leadership out there. And so if people definitely want to get more involved to learn more about your campaign, to learn about what Matt's doing, what you're doing, essentially what the game changing looks like, where can they get more information? Yeah, absolutely. We do have a petition that we're looking for everyone to sign right now. It's bit.ly slash sleepout. Sleep out RI. Sleep out petition, sorry. <laughs> sleep out petition. So bit.ly slash sleep out petition. Fantastic. And where can people find you on social media if they'd like to follow you? They can find me on Twitter at Cynthia underscore Mendes, M E N D E S underscore. 
Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook is Cynthia Mendes RI. Wonderful, and last question, when are the elections for you? 2022, September, that's when the, the fight is on. But to be clear, we started fighting a long time ago and we're not gonna stop. Yes, and I appreciate it greatly so much. Rhode Island State Senator candidate for Lieutenant Governor. Thank you so much, Cynthia Mendes. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me. All the best to you. Thanks.